Thank you for joining us this week on Municipal Mania, where we get to have an exciting uh, future vision conversation. Uh, no vision board this week. Don't worry, I'm going to get some <laughs> magazines now that I thought of it, and we'll be cutting that later. Cover yes. unicorns and kitties. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so we'll be uh, talking to some people that I've spent the last five or six months with intensively through New Leaders Council. This is a fellowship uh, that I was one of the inaugural cohort members with. We learned a lot of different stuff, but really focused on establishing our own personal progressive vision and what that really means within our communities and how we can continue to improve things. So we have some topics, um, a little bit more about New Leaders Council that we wanted to talk about, and so enjoy. For this first segment, we have Lena Rivera with us. Uh, Lena, do you want to introduce yourself? My name is Lena Rivera, and um, I'm originally from Martinsville, Virginia, but I've also lived in Richmond for the past eight years. Um, I've worked with VCU for a few years on the health system side as well as the university side. I also have worked with Upward Bound to help educate college students and be able to grow them and be able to present them with options to continue their education. And I've also worked with the Boys and Girls Club in Southside Richmond. So it's really unique to see both sides of the spectrum when it comes to urban versus rural education. Awesome. Thanks for joining us today okay. as one of my fellow NLC fellows. I just like saying that redundantly. Fellow fellows? Yeah. Did nobody fellow check that fellows. on my email? Fellow fellows? <laughs> no one else is there? Okay. That's fine. Kill me. <laughs> Kill me. I amuse myself. Part of the first conversation we wanted to have, of course, is rural Virginia and urban Virginia. A lot of topics that we've covered as NLC fellows have been, you know, what does progressive vision and change look like across the state? And being in Richmond, we're really not that far from some rural areas. Mm -hmm. And we hear a lot with the education discussion with school funding that urban and rural Mm -hmm. areas should be better allies. Mm -hmm. So part of the conversation of, you know, understanding from a Richmond perspective, what do we see the challenges are? And maybe even in our own rural experiences. I know, Fran, you're Mm -hmm. from a rural area. Uh-huh. Lena, you're also from a rural area. I'm from a suburban area. Uh-huh. Melissa, suburbia. Same. So yeah. in the conversations, like I've just noticed, you know, I think one thing I see a lot is transportation infrastructure. Yes. What else are we seeing as challenges or issues? And what are some of the solutions or concerns that we need to be dealing with, I guess, as it relates to just rural and also maybe where some of our positive intersections that we can actually like meet and work together are? Well, for one, there's this major misconception, I think that larger cities or bigger cities have better resources, especially for our kids. And it would happen that in Richmond, it seems to be the opposite. The counties, the surrounding counties and more rural areas are a little bit different um, because we've got a lot of, I would tag them as being wealthier counties surrounding the city. And a lot of people actually live in the counties and then commute to Richmond maybe to work and they their kids go to the county schools. And that's the coveted thing to do, is to send your kids to the schools. I, I wish that we had better partnership across school districts for these specialized programs. I know we have Maggie Walker Governor School, but you know, for some of these um, specialty magnet programs, these different coding 
programs that different high schools are, you know, funding in the counties and these specialized things that a lot of the counties have focused on and they have the dollars to focus on them. They have the updated classrooms to, you know, the space to, to run these programs. I wish that there was a better partnership across county lines to kind of help students do that. And I know that's something that can be done in Virginia because I attended Alawite County Public Schools for a period of time. They didn't have uh, one of the programs that I wanted to attend and so they bussed me to Suffolk, Virginia, which is a good 35 minutes away from my school because my that school had a program that I was interested in and there was kind of like a voucher sign-off system where my teachers said, you know, agreed that I could do it. And then I was bused to this program, this specialty program in Suffolk. And, you know, it was just kind of, I guess it was the counties working together, but I don't see why uh, Richmond City couldn't do the same thing um, with our surrounding counties since we're kind of landlocked with so many excellent county schools. Why not? So what was so what was the purpose of the specialty program? Like, can you talk more about that? Like, what that looks like? So there were different. So that the in the particular district where I was, Olive White County is kind of isolated. It's a smaller county. It kind of borders up to um, the edge of Sussex and Surrey, and then you have kind of Southampton in that area. We had no specialty programs. We had like the gifted and talented class. Like, were they really, really, would they be things like so? I, I went to I went to Chesterfield County, which is one of the ones mm-hmm. surrounding here. I was in a mass communications program. Exactly. There's also like a Spanish immersion program. Exactly. That's I what it didn't was. have mass communications at Manchester when I was there. <laughs> when you were there. I was going to say that's but. not a thing in Henry County or Martinsville either. Yeah. yeah. So that's it's like a, it, it was like that. So the one I went to was a technology emergent. So we built different robots um, with Legos and built the engines and another program during a different year was for engineering. It was like introduction to engineering and we had lots of different things. So there are different, I know there was one that was geared exactly towards uh, bioscience, the biosciences. Mm-hmm. I think it was interesting. We're talking here, you know, we have the access, like you were able to go 35 minutes. Lena, you're from Martinsville, if I remember, yeah. you know, and you asked the question of what do you mean by specialty center? I'm curious if you're experience, is there, we're talking like super rural on the other side mm-hmm. of it, what is it like out that way? Are those kind of things that people have opportunities with? Um, there actually, there isn't actually much opportunity for anything like that like when I hear other people talk about their school programs I get seriously jealous mm. because um, when I was in school the only programs that we really had like that they were they were more like trade centered mm-hmm. or they had like an what's called an ace program which we was for the high too, achieving yeah. students but mm-hmm. it was more but that program was still more of on an academic yeah. look and it wasn't it there wasn't anything that helped us find out like what other industries were like or trying to mm-hmm. build a specific skill set for anything other than anything labor related Mm -hmm. so that really that really hurt our chances out there I was luckily part of a great organization called Upward Bound which is kind of separate from the school you you Mm -hmm. know yeah so I I was actually in Upward Bound when I was in high school so we did have that opportunity to try to uh, show us a better way that we could live our lives through higher education and Mm -hmm. trying to help us navigate through that process Mm -hmm. But I feel like with that program, it didn't. It, it, it although it was great, and it's and if it wasn't for that program, I wouldn't be sitting here today. But the, it could be improved on, like actually having like specific skill sets that can teach people like real life skills mm-hmm. outside of academia. So with all those programs, I know funding is a big issue with them. Like it if, is. if they wanted to bring them either to Richmond or yeah. suburbia or rural areas, like it's funding. Right. And when we talk about funding in the cities, we always talk about economic development. 
Yeah. So mm-hmm. what does raising money look like in rural areas? How are localities funded? A lot of it, at least in Martinsville from my standpoint, because I, I also used to work for Upper Bound, a lot of that actually comes from government funding because mm-hmm. Martinsville's kind of seen as like a sympathetic part of the state. So it gets a lot of grants to do certain things. We had math books in our schools and like iPads that high school students started to use when they got older. Just because we get a lot of government funding, just because there's, there's a kind of pity on that area. Mm-hmm. Honestly, that's yeah. what it really is. Because I me, mean, otherwise, where's the money going to come from? There's no business there. It's like what the second year that Martinsville is not one of the highest unemployment rate in the state. Like, where's the money supposed to come from? There's no big companies out there other than Hooker Furniture, and most of that already went overseas. Mm. So, like, there's no there. there I mean, there there aren't really opportunities there for fundraising like that. The most rich people in Martinsville are teachers. Wow. So. so mm. That's just how it is out there, unfortunately. And all the white, it's 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 tax driven. Part of it's property tax, and then Smithville or inside of Alawite, the town of Smithville, brought in a lot of revenue from tourism. And there, at the time when I was there, last time I looked at their budget, a portion of the tourism went to schools. And um, there's always economic development going on because you've got uh, Smithville Foods. Mm-hmm. was in town and so they evolved through several they broke into several different businesses and now it's a Chinese company that makes dog food or something but we hear in the national scale we talk about like coal mining we're gonna bring coal miners back or oh, we gosh. see like yeah. I was reading like an entire article about how like there's also nonprofits getting millions of dollars to train people on jobs in rural communities and nothing happens and they basically come in and they get paid as facilitators and then they like, mm-hmm. it's not a real program. You're gonna learn how to code, quote unquote, is the newest yeah. one. Right. Out towards the east, I see where there's just a, I, roads. Yeah. Access and road access when you get out to like Southwest Virginia and yeah. how few highways and just distance between stuff. Yep. I mean, I was, I know I was working with somebody, it was gonna cost five grand to get Comcast. They'd use a hotspot yeah. and like five grand just I to get. A, I use internet. a hotspot where I live now because yeah. we don't have files. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, but that—that's uh, something else. And you touched on it earlier. How, wait, how do kids go to like? How do kids do school without like consistent? I mean, you I go know to the we library. Have, you I know we have the library. Wow. Yep. I know we have the problem here library. in Richmond with some like there's some places that don't have necessarily Wi-Fi or people mm-hmm. have Wi-Fi, but I think that's an interesting commonality of. Yeah, you go to you go to the public library. I lived in the public library. I once I got to growing up, we didn't have Wi-Fi or cable in my house actually, mm-hmm. and so when there was something that had to be done on a computer, even though I owned a computer, we didn't have the internet. So at the time of the introduction of the Google, I didn't have mm-hmm. access. So I would my parents changed my route home to get off at the Smithville City Public Library, and so I'd ride the bus from my school to the library to do my homework. And then one of my grandparents would pick me up and take me home because that was my internet access. But we did have trade programs and trade programs are definitely pushed in rural areas because mm-hmm. they don't necessarily push. And we had upper bound, but it didn't it didn't really take. And so that was, and I think it was because of the large gap in socioeconomic class in that county definitely. as well. And so there were already people that could afford to send their kids to school and would send their kids to school and would go through the program. And you'd have school counselors within the uh, school district that would say, well, you know, college isn't for everyone, Sally. So maybe we shouldn't waste your parents' money on application um, fees. And we should start you with Paul D. Camp Community College was one. And then I'm trying to think of the one that was in Suffolk that my, my brother went to it for uh, culinary arts. But it's um, a program in Suffolk and they actually bus the kids from the high school to the school every day. You can get your cosmetology license. You can get your welding license. You can get a 
culinary arts something certificate you know so that's I, I think that type of development is pushed in rural areas because they don't value college I think and sometimes and sometimes that's valuable but um I have found like because like I know people that actually put themselves through college but they weren't meant for college like mm-hmm. honestly they should have just went to a trade school because that's what they would have excelled in mm-hmm. I think the problem that we have is that there isn't that selection or that variety to choose mm-hmm. Where, what direction you want to take your own life. So in the last minute or so we have here, what are some things, just quick ideas of what needs, like what change, like should people be focusing on when we talk about rural areas or like what are the things that could actually help areas when we hear their needs out there? I think for myself, um, I, I, and again, I think I need to allude back to the fact that there needs to be more of a variety of giving people options and access to choose what it is they want to do with their own life and expose them to what their life could be. So, because if I hadn't had that, if I hadn't been exposed to what my life could have been outside of Martinsville, I would probably still be there. Mm-hmm. And and I think having that business having that business development aspect is really important because the people that develop and do uh, do great things they leave. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big problem in rural areas is that the people that are talented leave. Yep. And go to urban areas. That's where I am to, now. That's to find why I'm in else. Richmond. Now I'm not saying yeah. I'm like super talented, but you know I tried. You yeah. are. So, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, basically, yeah. So I yeah. I left Martinsville to come here because there was just more opportunity without that business development access that um, aspect. Why even bother to put all these programs in place if people are just going to leave? And I, I'm as we're t- as I'm thinking about this, I'm reminded of the Boston busing uh, project that you, Jesse and I were talking about. One of the things, and I think that's ultimately that's what it comes down to, diversifying the opportunities, but not all, but not just the opportunities, but also just the people that you're in the class with. In these rural places, you go to the, I mean, there might be one high school, one middle school, uh, maybe two elementary schools. You go to the same schools with the same, same people the your entire life. And so when you have these programs that you can cross uh, county lines with, it gives you access to different people, different socioeconomic classes, different family structures, mm-hmm. different everything. It kind of exposes people to different things, and that too opens opens people's eyes to more opportunity. Well, thank you so much for this discussion. It's been interesting. Appreciate you coming in, Lena. Thank yeah. you. Thank, thank you, you for having you. me. Yes. Enjoyed it. Seems like there ain't nobody wants to come down here no more. They're closing down the textile mill across the railroad tracks. Foreman says these jobs are going, boys, and they ain't coming back to your hometown. our next segment of our fun progressive vision conversation we're going to be talking about jobs and economy we have denver and antonio denver can you introduce yourself yeah denver supinger um i'm a wonderful progressive from northern virginia i work for the house of delegates for elected official up there and have been trying to rock out some policy in the commonwealth and antonio i'm antonio ingram i'm originally from los angeles california i now live in richmond and i'm a lawyer and i work for a federal judge downtown super exciting Cool. <laughs> awesome. So thank you guys for joining us today. Throughout the, the course of NLC and progressive movements and just general politics, I know we talk a lot about the need for jobs and economic opportunity for people. What, what do you guys see of like things that we need to be changing and moving towards in those areas? 
Yeah, I think from my perspective, we have to learn how to open up our social networks. Because even now, like, people can go to college, get a degree, but if they don't know the right person, it's, like, super hard. Um, and I'm thinking about it now, like, I went straight from college to law school. My younger sister's graduating college this June, and she's going to work for a few years before going to grad school. And I have no idea how to advise her to get a job. And honestly, it's been me, like, relying on my social network to, like, help her get opportunities. And I'm like, wait, but, like, we're first-generation college students. Like, what if I wasn't here? Like, what would she do? Like, how would she access these networks mm-hmm. um, to get employed? And I think it's hilarious. I went to Yelp undergrad. Our career services were horrible. She goes mm-hmm. to UC San Diego. Also horrible. It's like a universal sort of issue with these schools. Like, they mm-hmm. just, like, don't know how to empower people. My college does, too. Yeah. <laughs> to get yeah. jobs. And so well, I they've think... they've done their job. They don't... Right. right. Not like, really you have a Let's be real. They got their check. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Bingo. So, yeah, I think even... So, I can only imagine, like, if you don't have access to education, like, how jobs in the market mm-hmm. looks. I mean, we don't even prepare our elite individuals, and I don't want to use the term elite, like, lightly, like, those who are able to get education. Mm-hmm to be able to find jobs and know how to like work and like have skills that transfer to the workplace outside of this is academic knowledge, right? Right? You like get this degree, oh I got a BA in philosophy, what the hell are you going to do with now that? Now what? Now what? That's a huge lacking in the American like system is we don't actually equip people for real jobs when they spend 60 to 120,000 dollars to school. Mm-hmm. Are there real jobs out there though? And was, <laughs> maybe was that intentional? I mean, I'm right. just thinking about the plan and the, the change in generation when, you know, people, college wasn't the thing. College was, was an elite choice. Mm-hmm. Um, now you're being pushed. Everyone goes to college and um, everybody gets an extreme amount of debt. And then we all end up in, around the same table. Nobody has experience because mm-hmm. they didn't get a job first before they went to grad school or something else. God, I love Richmond. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You can tell we're right in the heart of the city right yes. now. Yes, clearly. <laughs> and so, you know, when you talk about now I owe $100,000 in student loans and I'm competing with four other people that owe the same amount, if not more, um, and we're all gunning for an entry-level job mm-hmm. that's 30 k a year. But Amazon's going to save us. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I think we're all going to die like <laughs> yes. eating beans. Like, that personally. are delivered by drones. like Basically. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting, too, because the system is built up in a way that it doesn't lead to everyone having equal footing mm-hmm. um, in terms of even building a resume. Um, I remember when I was in college, Yale had these internships only Yale kids could apply for. Mm. And so, like, if you went to Yale, you automatically had access to opportunities that weren't that competitive right. because you're only applying against your classmates, and we have, like, 1,100 people per year. But then you graduate and you're applying to grad school, you're applying for these jobs, and they're like, oh, well, you did three years of internships. Where my younger sister, who goes to a California public school, like, yeah. because of budget cuts, you usually go to summer school because you just want to graduate. Yeah. You don't have time yeah. to like, try to intern, um, and you don't have the same social networks. And so it's interesting because, you know, we will judge people for like lack of experience, mm-hmm. but yet our system is set up such that like, they don't get opportunity to actually gain experience. Well, I think even the fact that most internships are unpaid, like the Senate mm-hmm. Page program is one that I know people have talked about recently, but it's been unpaid. Mm-hmm. And who's accessing the Senate Page programs? Mm-hmm. The overall internships is an issue. But going back to like mm-hmm. having these degrees and these skills, there was once upon a time where there were apprenticeships, like yeah. there was workforce development within the job place, like mm-hmm. within the workplace, and that doesn't happen anymore. I think capital structures have pushed that onto Boom. the individual yes. Yes. and like, Boom, like we don't need to do this because it's, it costs us too much money mm-hmm. yeah. so we're going to put it on you to get a degree and then give you a job that you know 
we could honestly have a high schooler do. Mm-hmm. And, and then say really important is like, you yes. know, we talk about how we as, as, as the labor force, quote unquote, can be better and how we need to figure out how to get better resources. But like, mm-hmm. we need to hold employers accountable yes. for doing, I'm sorry, I'm still blown since yesterday on the fact that there's no requirement in Virginia for private sector employees to be get a lunch break. Hmm. Or yep. any yep. break at all. Yep. Like, there's no law that protects employers of that, employees of that. And, you know, there's, of course, the side of it of there might be people who need financially to work through that lunch break. Yeah. But at the same time, that also leads to things of, like, you know, how are you going to go get to a doctor's appointment? Like, how many of us have taken a lunch to go to a doctor's appointment so you mm-hmm. don't have to take the whole day off? Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. And that's assuming, like, you have access even to, like, the health insurance. To do that. Right. And you think about how that impacts the health of, like, your work can kill you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also then how that adds to, like, some of the health disparities that we talked on our show two or three times weeks ago yeah that it just happened within our own city of richmond which it ends up being in very very concentrated areas where there's mm-hmm. poor health so maybe let's stop thinking of like just hey it's just about the wage or it's just about one thing right. it's so much it's bigger entire condition and mm-hmm. I, I think it's too the the conversation up until now has been really focused on you know what you do after you get a degree but for a lot of people especially in um, a city like Richmond, they never make it to college. Mm-hmm. And so what do those people do and what type of equity do they have in the job field um, in terms of being able to work a job that pays a working wage? What does that look like and how do we fix it? It's a great question. I think one conversation we were having yesterday at our fellowship, it was a good point of the fact that we talk about minimum wage, Mm -hmm. but when we say like living wage, like minimum wage, $15 an hour is very different for everywhere Mm -hmm. that we're Mm -hmm. at in parts of the state. Yeah. And getting down to the fact that it needs to be like, what is 30% of your expenses Mm -hmm. and start having conversations that are more um, applicable, Mm -hmm. I think across broad spectrums to really coalition build to people that, because I mean, if we go up to Northern Virginia and are like, hey, y'all in on this $15 an hour minimum wage fight? Right. <laughs> right, right, right. What are you gonna buy with fifteen dollars an hour in, in Nova? So like this little stuff like a that. Hamburger. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A hamburger. But yet we have people at Dallas Airport who are making tipped wages at like two dollars and something cents an hour, and uh, we expect them to live in the North Virginia region mm-hmm. and have that as their status quo. And these are a lot of immigrant families who are still sending money back to mm-hmm. their home countries. Mm-hmm. And it just blows my mind of like how they are making it work when I'm like, you know, an upper class white woman who's like making a decent salary in Northern Virginia and I'm, I'm still struggling, you know, month to month making that rent, which is like 1500 bucks for a studio. Mm. So. Mm-hmm. That's not a fun place. I, no. I, I lived in Nova for two years. <laughs> yeah. And it's same. not sustainable. Yeah. Not sustainable. It's not sustainable. So with like, um, obviously one place that people always look to and people, I mean politicians, and traditionally probably more on the right side of the spectrum, but I think on the left side, there are a lot of people that also believe in the same kind of things, specifically economic development and giving things like tax breaks, incentives to employers to come in and give jobs to people. Is there a better way? Should we be really incentivizing corporations to continue to take advantage of people because that's how I feel about it like that's how I feel like the only place or space that I feel like that type of incentive should be is absolutely necessary in order to stimulate that is for uh re-entering society for felons Mm -hmm. and so I think that's absolutely necessary in that case because I mean I know we have banned the box but you still have people that or, or you know industries that will look into that or will see that and that counts against that person. And so you can't expect me to, you know, do better if I can't 
get a better job or I can't provide for myself, I'm going to go back and sell drugs or I'm going to go back and steal your TV or your car. I don't, you know, you're not giving me many options. So mm -hmm. in that case, I love the fact that we do incentivize companies to do that because if we didn't, we'd be a fish creek in that area. Well, I think for a lot of tax breaks and incentives, there's not like a logic that people follow when they think about these things and that I feel like, you know, oftentimes the argument is, so if you give someone a tax break who's an employer, they will then take that extra money to like either hire more people or create more infrastructure that can lead to more economic development. Mm -mm. But it doesn't work like that. They just will go to Tahiti extra time. Right. Yeah, and that's, yeah. that's, 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 like, that's where this like capitalist corporate greed thing comes yeah. in. Because yeah, in theory, what we're, what we're operating on when we give tax breaks is that like, yeah, they could, but they don't have to. But they don't. And especially in Virginia where we don't have very many laws that protect employees, it's always this hypothetical, well, they could do this. I mean, I see in Richmond where we have this whole argument about the cigarette tax that how we can't raise a cigarette tax because not just Altria, but man, the gas station owners, the oh, convenience yeah. stores are yeah. going to go out of business yeah. because it's specifically a cigarette tax. Like, mm -hmm. so you can't, in Virginia, obviously can't tax anything about the cigarettes. And there's this point of, I think one of our council members looked at them and said, ultimately, your business owner diversify. Yeah. Figure it out. Sell right. healthy food. That's yeah. yeah. Sell like, something that's else. the structure that you are benefiting off <laughs> of. You have yeah. to adjust and how, yeah. like, bring a generational aspect, like how millennials and young people are blamed for all these industries dying. It's like, no, they're not meeting the needs of the people and you can't put that blame when it needs upset or group. Mm -hmm. I think that's the thing is like for me it's just you know on one hand there's a lot of businesses that like to take advantage of the lack of regulations by using the excuse of capitalism mm -hmm. and then you know when we give them the benefit of the doubt and say hey you could do these things with your money and maybe you will and then they don't time after time. It's like okay. Yeah at, at what point are we going to realize like this isn't working. It's not gonna work. Exactly. They don't have to do it. So, but then at the same time, they gain sympathy when it doesn't work in their advantage. Yep. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Right. And unfortunately, the people who are like making these policies, these tax cuts, whatever, these incentives for everyday people to benefit are being are being crafted by people who are not the everyday people. Exactly. Right. Like not having the ability to unionize in Virginia is a huge gap in their in workers' rights and our ability to build a stronger worker base, mm -hmm. to actually have families supported, to have dignified uh, work days and workers um, mm -hmm. who can retire in dignity as well. I would be a lot more okay with economic development and jobs if mm -hmm. we were not a right to work state. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like if there was a formal like union ability, like people, those people would like to unionize. Cause I just feel like at some point we just don't have any protections. Like mm -hmm. if you want to come mm -hmm. to me with, I don't care if it's whatever corporation and whatever development project, like yeah. I don't really want to talk about it until there's protections in place to like prevent the negative impacts that they keep benefiting off of. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that it also changed, it, it, I think, I know it shaped me as a labor worker because when I figured out, when someone sat me down and told me what it means to work in Virginia, I was like, I can't say anything at work. I'm walking around on eggshells. I And I became that robotic worker that every company wants. I'm gonna give you 110% of my energy and you're gonna give me pennies in my check. And I'm destroy gonna- Destroy my soul. Yes, right. and I'm gonna buy into this company and I'm gonna give you everything that I have and I'm gonna train other people under me and I'm gonna really invest myself, my time, everything into this company because I want you to, to want me because mm -hmm. you could fire me at any point. Exactly. And so I, in order for me to keep this job and to be able to pay my car payment, I've got to make sure that you like me and that you want me. 
I'm where, sorry. Like, I'm getting abused. I just have to like, <laughs> so we have, like, I just have to say this. Like, that, that is the most infuriating thing to hear because I think it's the mm-hmm. most typical thing of, like, how employers and, and employees are treated. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's this whole thing of, like, this whole idea of you have to write a thank you note to follow up from an interview. Yep. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but my value is me. You yeah. should be actually courting me because I'm right. better than any of this company right here in this mm-hmm. moment. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. like, you know, I w- I've been in a situation where I was raised to have, like, a high degree of self-confidence and self-worth. And I, I personally know that, like, I have a very different advantage privilege when I'm going to sit mm-hmm. here and look at someone and say I'm not doing this mm-hmm. and you know I think that we also need to come to a place where like how do we hold employers accountable because you know I, I, I'm a small business owner I, I'm somebody that has interviewed on the corporate side mm-hmm. I've always viewed interviews as an opportunity for both people to select themselves because exactly. yep. I do not want an employee that's going to hate it there yeah. So every single interview, I actively sell people out of the job. Like I tell them like the worst possible things that could happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I tell them the support that's going to be there to get them through it. But at the same time, like you might get this. Is this something you can take? <laughs> right. If not, don't sign up for this. Because yep. fully informed. Yeah. So in our last minute, like what are some quick hit items that maybe we can try attacking with this vision of going forward towards improving jobs, economy, but maybe aren't the typical answers that we always hear. If they are the typical answers, we just say they're good answers. That's also all right. Hmm. So I know they're. Personally, there's I'm trying to push um, non-retaliation policy in Virginia. So mm-hmm. if you, which gives the workers voice protection. Yeah. Um. So if you see a, a gross, you know, misconduct by your employer, by your... oh, that's timely, isn't it? Yeah. Oh. I actually just quit my job. Yeah. Oh. Because my boss. Baby, you be so shady. Yeah. I mean, and right now, I mean, we have public you know, protections with whistleblower policies if you work for the government, but private sector, you're kind of screwed. Yep. You either close your mouth and suffer with it or you leave your job. And yep. a lot of people do not have the privilege to walk away. So and they die inside. Yeah, an awesome severance package let me walk away. Mm-hmm. And like that was a severance package that was required. Like it was in my employee benefits. I knew exactly what it was going to mm-hmm. be. It was prescribed when they decided to do layoffs. And I was able to say, you know what? I am not reapplying for this job. Yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah, I just happen to be blessed with two other people's mm-hmm. income in the household that's allowing me to take the summer off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, but who else has that? No right. Yeah. Let's be real. So any other last thoughts before we wrap up? I just wish there was a way to inform workers of like what little rights they do have. Mm-hmm. Like so many employers mm-hmm. get away would murder because people yeah. are just uninformed. Yeah, yes. we're looking at this. There's a board here. The room that we're in right now is a board. Like that employer, like all the things that have to be posted. It yeah. makes it look like you've got a lot of rights. <laughs> it's the same thing. Sure. Sure. Like, same Good stuff line. repeated. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like it's a yeah. whole board of words. But to your point, like it doesn't tell me what I don't have. Well, right. who's gonna exactly. sit here and take time out of their workday when they could be on the clock and read the fine print here because everything is fine print. It's right. like Nobody. six point font. So I <laughs> exam. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> a lot of work to do in Virginia. Well, thank you guys for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Well, good evening. Now, who are the boomers? Well, their parents came home from World War II and they had a lot of sex and they had a lot of kids. Then the kids grew up in a prosperous time where America was the only superpower left. Then they played all the music and they did all the drugs and they had all the sex and they all went to college and they got all the jobs and they made all the money and they bought all the houses and they won't ever die. All right, so our next segment of today's discussion is housing, affordable housing, preferably, always. Oh, love it. And always. Um, but for this discussion, we have a uh, dirt friend favorite. Yay! Yay! Yay. Amy's back. Yes, hello, everyone. <laughs> hey, girl. Hey. Welcome. 
This is Amy. Yeah. Yes. So I'm Amy Wentz. I currently reside in the city's eighth district. Um, Hashtag Amy in the eighth. Yes. You better say that. Yes. All the time. (laughs) So yeah, housing has definitely become an issue that I have been um, more in tune to talking about, speaking about, and just being an advocate for those issues. So I'm glad you guys have opened this opportunity up. Yeah. Yeah. It's our pleasure as always. So we talked a lot about housing even just specifically yesterday at our, our fellowship. But, you know, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing in Richmond and maybe specific even to the 8th District? Yeah, so I'm going to um, just tell you a little bit like of a personal story about me that a lot of people don't know. I My first apartment was on the city south side in La Mancha, which is now called Southwood Apartments. It's actually in the city's 9th District, right off of Hull Street, if you're familiar with it. It's like a uh, there were a few complexes that kind of, became this conglomerate of, of complexes. And that was where I lived um, with my new baby for, um, for a stint when I was younger, I think 18 years old. And I worked at a daycare center and my daughter went with me to the daycare center. So I was able to work and then have her at work with me in another classroom. Amazing. And yeah, so it was a good opportunity, right? Yeah. Until yeah. my daughter got sick. And mm-hmm. so when my daughter got sick, I she couldn't be at the daycare center because they had a rule about that and so uh, she had to stay at home and uh, I had to stay at home with her and I ended up losing my job Mm -hmm. and so not too far after that I got evicted from my first apartment Mm -hmm. and there is something to be said um, and it's a real experience when you know you get your all of your belongings put on a street corner and then seeing your neighbors kind of sifting through your stuff mm. um, and the dig- you know the dignity you lose when you have that happen to you so i've i've felt firsthand what it's felt like to you know be in that experience not being able to make the rent having to be evicted and then being banned from the property so that the, some of the things that i did were was able to give to my neighbors in the in the uh, place next to me I couldn't come back and get because I was banned from the property. So at that point, you get a trespassing charge, you enter the criminal justice system. So housing issues and the unaffordability leads to so many other things. And um, so, yeah, I'm glad that the conversation is now being expanded to talk about affordability and just making sure everybody has, you know, the ability to live in a spot that they can afford and have protection over their family. What do you think some of those barriers are that we're seeing to, like, finding affordable housing? I mean, is it is it jobs? Is it the lack of housing? Is it, like, what are the things that, were, that exist? Is it also maybe having the highest eviction rate in like, the country? In it's the a country? mountain of, of all those things combined. Mm-hmm. It's, it's affordability. It's the price of what's there. It's availability and the point of um, it's just not there. And if it's there... Um, the quality of living that you're getting at this at these available places are are questionable the things that you have to put up with if you're renting especially well not really limited to but especially a single family unit a single family home you know renters don't know what their rights are Mm -hmm. in terms of what they fix versus what the landlord's responsible for fixing and so things get broken and they don't know where to go what to do and how to function and so landlords take advantage of them for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually, so one of my friends was actually telling me a story about when they were younger that they a light bulb went out at their apartment mm-hmm. and they didn't realize that they could call the landlord and ask them to, re- to fix that or like to replace it. That was like their responsibility. Mm-hmm. So they went out and like just got a lamp and just lived with it. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's such a stark image because that's mm-hmm. something that a lot of us might think is like, oh, that's an obvious thing to, to right. deal with or like you always contact your landlord. but. 
if you also have a history and experience of seeing that when you even even if you do call it does it just, nothing happens right mm-hmm. then that that changes your perception of what your rights are and what you're supposed mm-hmm. to do and not do or what you can do a lot of people have this misconception of when stuff is broken and the landlord's supposed to fix it that they can withhold their rent until it's fixed and that's not true it needs to go on uh, escrow that you need to go to the court and mm-hmm. do and it's all these different things that people you know i think a lot of it is the fact that people don't know what they can and cannot do and the landlords don't make it easy um well i mean as of right that. now they don't even have to have a written lease mm-hmm. not until right. july 1st it'll finally be a law in virginia yep. you, are you legally required to have a written lease it's and, crazy and in that moment mm-hmm. like when i was telling about that story just exactly what you were saying i didn't even know how to even advocate for myself in that moment right because i i didn't know it's not one of those things that's taught and who as do you a call for that and who do you call but to answer your question um one of the things that i folks in the industry to provide housing across the board just have to operate with some integrity you know and yeah. just to, to yes you can still make a profit on flipping homes and creating spaces but you can also pr- provide affordability at the same time. So there's a group, I think it's Damon, Damon and Tara over on the south side, they're, do- they're making that happen. They're, they're getting homes, they're flipping them, they're making a little profit for themselves, but keeping them at an affordability rate where folks that, you know, that need them can get them. Mm-hmm. So it's like they're not just flipping them, charging you know, double the rate, mm-hmm. <laughs> double what the, the market rate in the area is, and then trying to get the most bang for their buck, they're just, they're actually trying to come up with an equitable solution that benefits them, but also benefits the community. I was going to say it benefits the community. One, because when you have these flippers that come in and uh, over-renovate these homes mm-hmm. and bring yeah, them up to these wild standards. Yeah, I was about to say, they're like on HGTV or whatever. You yeah. don't need marble in a home. I'm sorry, I do not need a wet bar on Northside. Right. <laughs> in no. my basement. Like, I don't need, yeah. I don't yeah. need an entire year renovation that involve like, raising the um, floor of the house and yeah. digging it further to do a complete renovation of the basement, basement floor to be yeah. able to do a wet bar so you can sell it for half a million dollars. Yeah, like, but, that's, I mean, don't <laughs> but that's, that's the thing. Like, it, you know, there's a market of people that want those houses. And at the same time, as a flipper, you have to be cognizant of you coming into these neighborhoods, what you making this profit does to the three houses on the block f- that are old women that, you know, depend on their social security check to pay their taxes that you've now driven out of the neighborhood that they've lived in for 70 years. But I think you also just said, like, developers have to do this. Unfortunately, they don't. No, they don't. Well, some of them do. Some Some of them do. do. It's a choice. Like, David, it's a choice. Some of them do. So, you know, why are people making these choices? How do we encourage those choices? Because I think, again, like, we say that they need to do these things, but also, like, the what's in it for them. Mm. Unfortunately, capitalism. Insert cash rules everything around me right here, please. Because I think that's the sound side. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah, they need to. We want them to. But right. Staying solution focused and, you know, some of what we talked about earlier today at NLC during our affordable uh, housing segment, you were talking about maybe incentivizing the supply. And I really mm-hmm. like that concept. Do you want to expand on that further a little oh, bit? Oh, yeah. For so, the people. This is, yeah. So it's something that, like, you know, when you think about very typical solutions, and I always try to find things that, especially if I can um, use language 
that crosses an aisle where mm-hmm. maybe rebranding things mm-hmm. gets a little further, especially if it's playing into an existing structure. So capitalism, an existing mm-hmm. structure, mm-hmm. has this whole like fundamental reality called supply and demand. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you have a larger supply to meet your demand, the house, the, the pricing will naturally go lower. And so like right now in Richmond, we focus a lot on the home ownership aspect of it or also doing the individual um, individual flips and things like that, but also like recognizing that we need to figure out how to get a large volume of affordable housing at once. Mm-hmm. Because even when we look at the Navy Hill project, if it's 10% or whatever, 12%, there's mm-hmm. still 90% that are at market or above market rates that are mm-hmm. gonna saturate what the supply is. Right. So the idea is like, how do we find a way to be able to incentivize? Is it a higher amount of tax credit for somebody that's saying, I'm gonna do more of this be affordable and right. basically incentivize them to actually continue to create the supply. So there's also this natural effect mm-hmm. of being able to weigh out the other increases because mm-hmm. eventually it's just going to keep going up and up and up if we don't fix the actual supply piece of it right and unfortunately with most of the tax credits it's 15 year of affordability mm-hmm. and so that's like alarming 15 years you think about how long have you lived in your house like i know i've lived in my current home for 10 years add five more years i mean and then affordability goes away so we were learning about tax credits and how they get the in- the incentive for keeping them affordable for 15 years and how really that's not that long. No, it's so not. when 15 years is up and all of these communities have been built in say this year, 15 years from now, they now all what? get to go up. Now right. We, yeah, now what? And right. also on top of it, when we say again, we can't get out of this conversation without saying affordable for who? Mm-hmm. Right. Because you know, even though we say it's 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 based on however much, like even if it's a sliding scale of saying, hey, if you do way more for supply, we're gonna help you out here, but also Honestly, it just it's not like we're talking about people taking a huge, huge cut on their profits. Like we're talking about people right now that are in the fifty to sixty percent AMI. That's mm-hmm. area median income. In the Richmond area, MSA, Richmond Metropolitan Statistical Area, that's like eighty thousand dollars. That's mm-hmm. obviously not really realistic mm-hmm. for Richmond City. Yeah, that's wild. And if you think about like fifty to sixty percent of AMI, that means that we're talking affordable housing in Richmond is helping people between thirty and forty thousand mm-hmm. dollars of income. And that's not when, when we're all sitting here talking about affordable, like most of us aren't talking about that. When we no. talk about like eviction diversion, who's one of the number one person um, or entity that's evicting people in Richmond? Mm-hmm. Yep. Our public housing, yep. our RRJ. Yep. And the biggest need for people is that zero to 30% AMI. So we were talking mm-hmm. about earlier today right. is right. like mm-hmm. that's the biggest need. That's like no matter what, if it's all these great organizations I can name off right now, mm-hmm. you know, again, home ownership, at some point, like how do we figure out how to create a, a a sustainable place and you know when we have for 15 years you guys are saying that only 15 years can we create it affordable mm-hmm. affordable for 40 to fifty thousand dollars income mm-hmm. that's really yeah. not you taking a huge mm-hmm. profit cut no mm-hmm. like that's crazy that we have to even incentivize that like mm-hmm. just let people live and then i think mm-hmm. a lot when we when we were researching the tax credits especially during that expansion of manchester the historic district over there mm-hmm. um one of the things that the study that vcu did on the tax credit program out there was that 87% of the people that applied for the tax credit made $100,000 or more. Wow. So they're, you know, the, the folks that are getting the tax credits are already doing pretty good. So right. it's like, come on, guys. But, and is, again, that's education. Excuse that's me, knowing, come on, y'all. That's knowing, you know, who, who, where to go, what to do. I remember I was talking about looking at homes, and Melissa, you and I were talking about it. You had just purchased a home, and I was like, man, wouldn't it be fire for me to purchase one of these big old houses in Northside in a neighborhood that I love 
and I'm going to apply for some historical tax credits. I'm going to Are you going to put it in an LLC and run it back to yourself? Exactly. That's the only way because I can do it. I'm like, I'm I'm on the site. I'm looking up the the 40-60 split for state and federal. And I'm like, all right, I got this. I'm going to come up with the cash. I'm going to flip this house. Big mansion goes for sale. Two blocks from Melissa goes up for 70K. I'm like, I'm going to scoop this. Have a 6,000 square foot house. I'm going to do it. And then they're like, well, which business name are you putting it in? And I'm like, what? Mm, yeah. It's yeah. For, it's Say what? Yeah. And so think about how that limits, you know, again, we're incentivizing a, a particular type of person and a particular type of home ownership. Mm-hmm. Because if you're going to give me 40% back or 45% back of my investment uh, of what my renovation was for you to uh, rehab this historical house, I've had the upfront capital to do it. You know, like, one, yeah, one, you've got to have the capital to do it. Mm-hmm. And and two, that means that you've got to be able to, you know, manage this this flip and you're marketing a certain person. That's not going to be a house that's 150K. And the person that stays there is not you because you have to be able to rent the home at least for or se- Yeah, the- rent it or sell it or something. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I'm saying. That's targeting a particular person. Guess that's what house a- is still sitting there crumbling? I mean, and I think, though, that there's programs, like, I mean, in other states, to be fair, but I'm sure there's ways to do it in Virginia, where right now we also have, like, city council talking about, like, should we have all of these development agreements to almost make it easier for developers to come through to eliminate the problem of blight, quote-unquote, I'm, like, using major air quotes. Because I think when we talk about the problem of blight, it's ignoring the issue of affordability. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know where I was going with it, but I wanted to bring that up. So I was yeah. just sitting here thinking, oh, yes, please, just make it easier for developers. Yeah, so developers just come in and scoop well, these houses up. I mean, please. all you need to do is just, like, if it's tax delinquent, like, sell it for a dollar and oh, then have, no, um, within 30 days, it has to be a requirement that it's bulldozed so you can build new construction. Mm. That was a proposal from a current House of Delegates candidate. No, we're good. Mm. We're good oh, with that. Oh, my God, I want to barf. So with our uh, last <laughs> minute here... Mm-hmm. Um, what are some solutions that we see that we really want um, that we consider like progressive or maybe different things working ooh, towards? Ooh, ooh, I have one. When these developments come into Richmond and they demand these uh, zoning changes and all of these special provisions to do these uh, uh, developments and they promise affordable housing and they tell old people that live in dilapidated buildings that they're going to get a new apartment in this new, uh, I'll go ahead and say it, in this new Ginner Park, you know, development that, you know, the people fought over anyway and didn't want it because it was going to look like, which which place was it going to look like? Oh, it was going to look like Gilpin. Yeah, we don't want Gilpin in Ginner Park mm-hmm. because that's what a brand new uh, development in Ginter is going to look like anyway. And so we don't want that. And then affordable housing gets off the table almost immediately once the development starts moving because... You just promised that because you knew that's what Richmonders wanted to hear and you knew that was progressive thinking, but when it comes time to call to get an apartment, they're $1,800 an apartment. And I'll say really quick, that idea that I cited is also a House Delegates candidate that presents themselves as very progressive. Mm -hmm. I think that's a big thing is like, actually do what you say you're going to do. Anything you have any me in the last couple of minutes, seconds? We just got to do better. I don't, I just, uh, it just frustrated me, (laughs) taking me back to the Ginner Park situation (laughs) and looking at that mammoth of a, a, you know, complex they have over there. It's probably the most beautiful complex that I've seen built in the city of Richmond for a long (laughs) time. And the fact that they resisted that and resisted uh, affordable housing. I mean, that never came through. That never came through. through. Right. It's just, we just got to do better. Yeah. We got to do better. Well, thank you very much, Amy. Thank you. It's illegal to kill off a landlord. 
or to trespass upon his estate. But to charge a high rent for a slum is okay To condemn two adults and three children to stay In a hovel that's rotten with damp and decay Is a thing that is perfectly legal For the uh, last part of our segment, obviously we've talked to a few different people today uh, and we keep talking about this thing, NLC, or New Leaders Council. I mean, it's some exciting people here, the co-directors of the Virginia chapter. Um, can we start with introductions? Uh, ben, we'll start with you first. Yeah, sure. you're sitting right next to me. Awesome, perfect. I know, I saw you look at niggas first. I did, I did. That's a trend. <laughs> you, might see that. you might see that today. Uh, so I'm Ben Stoltz. Uh, uh, like you mentioned, Jesse, I'm uh, one of the co-directors, co-founders of New Leaders Council of Virginia. Uh, currently in public policy school at UVA, um, but about 10 years ago I started as a classroom teacher, uh, sixth and eighth grade math, and then have been organizing um, on campaigns and with teachers and with folks throughout Virginia um, since then. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm Nigis Tabebi. I'm the co-director with Ben of New Leaders Council of Virginia, and I am active in Virginia democratic politics and also run my own consulting firm that provides a lot of training and story coaching for people trying to tell their story to change the world. So Nigis is actually the person that told me to apply for New Leaders Council. Um, and. I apparently, oddly enough, there's some things I just don't ask questions about. <laughs> shocking. Shocking. Rare like legitimately hell. shocking. I just kind of said like, yes. So, um, hey, Nigus, could you tell me and everybody else, like, what is New Leaders Council? Sure, Jesse. Uh, New Leaders Council is a six-month institute program that develops the progressive, emer progressive leaders that we like to say somewhere between emerging and established. People who've been out there and are doing the work or perhaps are facing a career transition and are really seeking an experience that will give them not just skills that they don't have yet, but also a community of thought partners, of mm. allies and friends, people who are going to be there to celebrate your highest highs, and but also that you can turn to during your lowest lows. And, I, you know, we're on our last day of our first institute, and I feel really good. All uh, the feels. All, so many feelings. <laughs> there was a feeling circle. There was yes, a there, there, actually oh was. there were tears, there were Kleenex, but um, I'm really, really proud of the people, including you, Jesse, that we brought into this program this year, and I can't wait to see what we build for the future, and I can't wait to see how all these people affect not just Virginia, but the country. I appreciate all the work you guys did, by the way. Like, just speaking as a fellow, it was it was a really great experience. It was something that I personally didn't know what I was walking into. But um, especially with where I was at in my life, one of the biggest things that I noticed is that there's not one person in our cohort. And of course, it can always change by cohorts, but like none of us knew what the heck we were doing with our lives in that moment. And it was really an empowering moment to look around and see that there's a lot of other people that are in excelling points in their careers. And mm -hmm. it's, it's this place of not a bad thing to not really know where the heck you're at. And mm -hmm. to then be able to walk into an environment where it's people in a similar place and mindset that are very positive and want to help create an environment where you can thrive. And, you know, just even every month taking the time that was like dedicated of there's two days, PS, it's like 8 a.m. to 6 p.m., two days in a row on mm -hmm. a Saturday and Sunday. But I think like there are days where I just couldn't talk afterward. I'm like, this has just been mm -hmm. so much. I'm so grateful um, for Game of Thrones tonight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I was ready for a nap. Um, 
Right. But like the, the level of like I know you both have heard like me rave about like yeah. my experiences there, and yeah. it's been, like it's it's really just development wise helped me get somewhere. Yeah, mm-hmm. you developed us all because we were all learning together. I'm really glad <laughs> this is VR Vator. <laughs> <laughs> well, so in 2018, I got to see Michelle Alexander speak at the opening of the uh, the Peace and Justice Summit at the opening of the Peace and Justice Memorial to victims of lynching, and she had this line that has stuck with me since and is like fundamental. Ben's heard me say this so many times, but we are not the resistance, we're the future, and it, mm. they're the resistance. And that line stuck with mm. me because that is one of the driving reasons we founded NLC, that like we do believe we are the future, but we're not inevitable. And if we don't invest in our leadership, but not just leaders, uh, we need to invest in communities because the times I think we have seen progressive movements fail is when we have let people outside of our movements divide us and Mm -hmm. turn us against each other, Mm -hmm. whether it's turning uh, the working class, using race to divide the working class, using gender to divide the middle class. There's so many different instances where when movements were gaining traction and momentum, somebody outside that movement who wanted to protect their power turned that movement in on itself. And one of the best ways we can prevent that from happening to progressive movements in the future is to make sure that we have trust. It's one of the reasons why it was important to me that we have somebody from RVA Dirt in a room that also has people who are legislative aides, people who are in the private sector, people who are community organizing in rural Virginia, that we all need to know each other and trust each other because protest needs to be paired up with policy papers, needs to be Mm -hmm. paired up with turning out the vote and registering voters in order to affect change. But sometimes we see these other tactics as competition and we get upset, too upset or too cranky because we don't trust each other enough to know that like that's not my weapon mm-hmm. but we in all this have, fight like, a, a fundamental value that we're yeah. all working to our goal together yeah, right sure. and yeah. we need each other we yeah. need protests yeah. to create urgency we mm-hmm. need right. white papers because when we have power we gotta have ideas to implement yeah and we need elections because if we don't have power it doesn't matter how many great white papers you've written they're just going to be dusty on a shelf somewhere we need yeah. people ready to vote through legislation that's actually going to make the change yeah. like because mm-hmm. i think that there's a lot of that time where it's like you feel like you're getting momentum and it's you need everybody because that's where you hit the moments of stalling using effectively using everything in your in your arsenal together and i feel like with nlc we're starting to see that trust and we're not the only program out there we're uh part but we are also part of a national program right there's 50 uh new leaders council chapters across the country and you know we have people who are coming into virginia who are nlc alumni and we're excited to welcome them into our community and we have people who are coming out of this cohort who are going to go move into i guess i'm very (laughs) reluctant i'm not sure i'm going to allow this but we're going to go move into other states and tap into their networks there and I think that's really exciting to be able to see us change not just our local communities and our states but Mm -hmm. also uh, exchanging ideas with other chapters. You said that there's other groups and organizations like this like what do you both think makes NLC different? Well one one piece I was thinking about was how we're a statewide chapter so we literally have fellows like uh, from southwest Virginia to central uh, uh, not just you know up and down the east side of the state you know Mm -hmm. so we have people who experience progressive values in different ways and implement them in different ways not only across sectors but across uh, geography across backgrounds Um, so we think that's a really unique room to be a part of where you have leaders who don't just look or act a certain way and interpret implementing those values in different ways whether it's founding your own business or having your own radio show to running for office or being on a campaign 
Um, and we think that's a special thing to be a part of. I think it's been really neat to see the diverse just industries and backgrounds and spaces. Like usually you come into a place like this where it's people you found them from the same place. From, yeah, from the same same bunch. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And I think that's just something that struck me as unique. Like what, what do you guys have done to um, really focus the effort on recruiting and the process of selection? One of the first things we did as a board, and I believe we're the first NLC chapter to do this, is we created an access and inclusion chair. And the the role of this person is not to personally enforce access, that access and inclusion is happening at every stage of the organization, but to equip board members and other people in the organization with the tools and resources so that we can each as individuals be fighting for access and, and access and inclusion. Because it's incumbent upon all of us as board members to make sure that the trainers we recruit are represent are representative and of the people they are training. It was responsible for all of us to be reaching out and leaning into our networks to find people to partner with us for events in. In, uh, outside of the Urban Crescent mm-hmm. and in places like Danville, Stanton, and all of these other rural uh, places that people don't normally get to. And also to be leaning into the selections process, like we had equity checks at different points to make sure that a process that if you are conditioned to having to always have your resume ready to go, you have written God only knows how many 300 word essays right. about yourself and you've got the material ready to recycle and you can turn this app type of application out in less than an hour is going to be different than if you haven't had to write a resume in several years and if you've never had to write a 300 word personal essay. And so we made sure that at different steps in the application process from the very beginning, having a Q&A with some of the other, with the DC and Maryland chapters on Facebook to give people access to how what is the application process and how do I succeed? To making sure that board members use their personal knowledge of candidates or our access to personal knowledge of candidates to be able to say, whoa, 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 like these three critical experiences are missing from this person's resume. We need to make sure that they are advancing at least to an interview, right? Or like to be sure to intervene and say the whole story has not been captured in this process yet. And we need to make sure that this person is not being unfairly judged because they haven't had to go through this type of experience, at least not frequently or not in a while. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, we are in conversations with, you know, National about how do you update an application process like this to make it more inclusive and accessible to many people. It's also things like not every stage of the application process is even accessible to folks who have, who need, you know, screen assistant devices or other things like that, you know. And so it's making sure that we're getting applications in whatever way we can and making sure that people are incorporated in the process. And matter what their situation is if they are interested and yeah I think that's been really critical for being able to have I mean I was we were shocked and somebody pointed out after the first class that there somebody had pointed out one another mark of diversity that they had never experienced and that we had hadn't even been trying to track or measure and our access and inclusion chair at the time said that she believes that when you proactively lean into representation you Mm -hmm. end up uncovering communities or types of marginalization that you weren't even trying to measure Mm. that you have now accounted for yeah uh, because intersectionality is real and once you start getting to a certain point you are actually creating even more diversity than you thought i think that was one for me as like a fellow of um being in the room with so many different people at once especially and having the conversations together and then be having a conversation that maybe you're typically used to in a progressive space and then someone will chime in and for me this happened more than once with um 
a couple individuals that were speaking from a lens of, of having disability. And that's something that very, very rarely are, are we really talking about in a lot of different progressive spaces. And just even, I remember early on, there was a um, an analogy to like what we should be doing as far as like progressive policies as, as it relates specifically to like ADA access that I never mm-hmm. really thought of. Right. Where, you know, if you build a ramp, mm-hmm. helps everybody. Like there's no real negative side of sure. if everything's a ramp for people yeah. that are able-bodied. And just having that like different perspective in these conversations because we should be able to have multifaceted policies. Part of like access though I know is financial. Who funds NLC? So NLC is funded by donors and it's a pay it forward uh, approach. So we're a 501c3 nonprofit and the board raised the minimum amount and because we are a progressive national organization we believe in helping chapters grow so a baby chapter does not have the same fundraising goals that a chapter that's been around for 10 years has all of the older chapters know that part of their role is to raise money to help subsidize the growth of the organization because we all benefit from a national network of progressive leaders and i think that combination of local to national is really important but we have been doing our own fundraising we have been securing sponsorships this the lunches we had shout out to mama jays and Inner City Blues for your in-kind donations for our lunches this weekend in Richmond. But we've had people support us through in-kind donations. We have people sponsoring our fundraising event, which, if you're in Richmond, is Saturday, June 29th at Triple Crossing's uh, Fulton location from 3 to 5 p.m. General admission tickets are $25, and if you are interested in sponsoring, you can contact RVA Dirt and Jesse will send you our way. <laughs> <laughs> I like Please how you slid that in there. Yeah, so that's, it's a, and it is a pay it forward approach and we are really committed to trying to raise as much money as possible because unlike some of the other uh, fellowship programs that are available, like we want this to be as free and an experience as possible. Mm-hmm. And right now, we definitely have fellows who are making some sacrifices uh, for their, their transportation costs and things like that that we don't want future generations of fellows to have to make. Mm. Uh, because that is, you know, equity is, comes when you make things completely free. And that part of paying it forward, I think, is a, a really important progressive value. That we don't believe that because I had it, I should be the last to have it. Right. Something right. that I really liked when I found out about the funding model of NLC was actually like the, the national split that local sure. chapters and just the recognition and tie of you don't have to be the best, 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 best chapter ever because none of it matters if you're not helping everybody else. Right. right. Which is not the standard in our world. Mm-hmm. But in the last minute or so here, why? Why NLC? Like, what's the pitch? Hmm. The one that I never questioned niggas on more. <laughs> well, what I'd like to talk about is uh, an organization that is on the conservative end of the spectrum that ended up graduating three um, infamous alumni, Mike Pence, Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell, who have at least, I think, 10 times the budget that we have, uh, have been around at least three times as long. And so one of the things that we talk about is that everything rises and falls on leadership. And so many of the issues, I know you all have talked a lot about issues, different singular issues today. And one of the things that we think ties issues together is great leadership and leadership with vision and with experience and with a meaningful skill set that can really um, advance society. And so we think that applying to this fellowship, supporting this fellowship is a way to not just you know resist against a different type of world, but build a, what did uh, King say? King said like a bitter but beautiful struggle for a new world. And I think that's what you're getting to be a part of uh, at NLC, whether you're a fellow, whether you're supporting, whether you're a board member. Well, thank you all for coming in and thank you for the two years of work mm. for both of you. Mm-hmm. I really appreciated it personally, and I know everybody else did, I'm sure. Fran and Melissa halfway appreciated it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Thanks for we'll the free education. People.
Tell people how oh, they can apply. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Tell people how they can apply. Oh, absolutely. Thank yes. You, uh, you can go to newleaderscouncil.org and the application link is up and live. It'll give you a drop down and you select Virginia and we'll get your information. You can also follow us on Twitter at NLC underscore Virginia, all spelled out. You know, our DMs are open. So give us a shout <laughs> if you have any additional questions about how to Slide apply. Slide in them. Slide in them. But only with professional uh, yes, development related conversations. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> this is a strongly pro-feminist safe space. Yes. <laughs> Thank you all. So long, farewell to you, my friends. Goodbye for now until we meet again. And as always, thank you guys for tuning in to RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania. RPS is, we got we passed the budget, I guess. We're fully funded. We'll see how it works out. Uh, Flint still has dirty water, and Richmond is most certainly still racist, but we're working on it. Talk to you next week.